Want to get your hands on some boxes and line socks? Very, very easy to do. Tell us a little about yourself and our survey, and we'll send you a pair for free. Just go to custom.sockclub.com slash IEX. You won't regret it. Hey, everyone. We recorded the bulk of this episode on December 22nd, but obviously since then, there's been some pretty significant developments uh, that may impact the potential legislative agenda. So we invited Henrietta back. She thankfully said yes, and she's going to add a quick update at the end of the episode. Uh, stay tuned. Welcome, everybody, to the latest episode of Boxes and Lines. Happy holidays from Boxes and Lines. That's the happy holiday Irish leprechaun. Uh, today, yeah. we're thrilled to have with us Henrietta Trez, our very special guest. We were recommended by some of you listeners out there and some of our clients that we should talk to her. So thank you very much for agreeing to do this. And as, as I did some uh, Google creeping on you before getting on, I, I thought it funny that uh, a lot of times we talk about market microstructure and we talk about hundreds of billionths of a second. And now we're talking to someone who's literally talking about hundreds of billions of dollars and stimulus packages. So I think this should be an interesting uh, We are expanding our range, man. We are going big. We're going Taking on the here. podcast world. Absolutely. Da, 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 da. Anyway, you're managing partner at Veda, Veda Partners. Is that how I pronounce it or Veda? Veda Partners. Veda, Jesus. I, I screwed it up twice. Veda, <laughs> Veda one, Partners. All yeah. the ways. <laughs> and, and anyway, I, I, I did read the website and I saw sort of a mantra of yours is uh, guiding investors away from the noise and towards the action. Like it. I love it. So I thought I'd start off with th thank you for joining the podcast and Maybe tell us a little bit about your firm and what you do and your experiences, please. Thanks, guys. No, thank you for having me. And yeah, you're absolutely right. I, I have a hard time even talking in millions. Anything below 50 million is just an asterisk <laughs> in my world. So scary. hundreds of billions and trillions of dollars is where we are at right now. By way of background, I've been in the sort of finance and political world for, I don't know, 15 or so years now. Uh, I started off, I'm from New York, so you mentioned that we'll be swearing a lot during this podcast. That totally <laughs> works for me. The, the start I had in this sort of sphere was really um, rooted in campaigns. So I worked on Fernando Ferrer's campaign. He was a Bronx Borough President candidate when I was in college. I and got my him. first taste there. Yeah, super yeah. fun. And then I went to work very shortly thereafter at the hedge fund run by Marty Zweig and Joe Domena. So um, got a real understanding of how the buy side works, which was really interesting, learned a ton, but still very much cared about politics. So went back down to D.C., I worked for Joe Crowley, the um, chairman of the DCCC and a senior member of the Ways and Means Committee before he was ousted by AOC, who is obviously now part of the squad and a big deal in DC. But there I learned everything about tax policy, macroeconomic policy, and how a bill becomes a law, which you cannot do without understanding tax. So it sounds lame and dull, but it's actually the only way you can turn legislation into a law, which is really cool. I worked at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce for a while and learned a ton from my bosses. Um, Ashley Wilson, if you're listening, she's the best. Pete Lawson doing tax policy and financial services, and then joined the Senate right at the start of the recession. So I worked for the senior senator from New Jersey, doing all of the work with the Treasury and Fed on TARP, the auto bailout, um, the trillion dollar stimulus package, 
working on campaigns during Obama's 2008 race and ever since basically have had a PhD in crisis. So whether it's the fiscal <laughs> cliffs or the expiration of the 0103 tax cuts or government shutdowns or the Trump administration or the U.S. trying to cha- trade you war. You were made for 2020. Then, <laughs> I know, exactly. And this has yeah. just been a constant series of crises. So you've been in your element. Yeah, it's been, it's been pretty standard, I would say. Um, lots of stimulus, lots of billions of dollars being thrown around. So I feel pretty comfortable with it at this point. That's fantastic. And would you mind telling us like at Veda Partners, so you interact a lot, like where we heard about you and where we recommended that you were a person that we should definitely be talking to was from our institutional buy side contact. So you're talking, like you said, you, you, you had some hedge fund experience. Actually, the contact who told us to talk to you was from a hedge fund. So I'm kind of curious um, how you interact with the hedge fund community and what, what they're talking to you about. Sure. Those are my clients. We have uh, mostly hedge funds, but also pension funds and some mutual funds, mostly domestic, but some over in the EU, obviously a lot of New York, Connecticut, uh, California. So those are my clients. I gear all of my thoughts towards them. But the way that I approach this job is, you know, investors are very intelligent and detail oriented and want all that same level of intelligence and detail when it comes to what legislation is passing. So usually I speak with portfolio managers, managing partners, people who are doing like the big macro look, and then they'll say, you know, after digesting that we're going to get a stimulus or we're not going to get one, which was the case for the last six months, you know, let me go talk to my sector analyst in the energy space or the tech space or um, in the retail space. Are we going to get unemployment insurance benefits? Yes. Is it going to be 300 bucks a week? It is now. It was down from the 600 bucks a week we had in the beginning of the year, but trying to steer them in a direction of what's going to happen legislatively. And that, unfortunately, for you know, the states, but very mainly for Veda partners, there have been macro drifts in the last 15 years, whether it was the Affordable Care Act or Dodd-Frank or the various bailout packages, the CARES Act, all that stuff always needs to start with the top down. And so my interactions with investors is everybody from, you know, the research director to the chief economist to, uh, you know, a specific sector analyst who really cares about, you know, a specific airline bailout. So from what you say, my understanding then is that you're helping people to understand, anticipate and figure out how to navigate all these currents, not necessarily looking to help influence the course of events on on the Hill. I mean, you're not registered as a lobbyist or any of that, I take it. No, that's exactly right. And um, it's a good point because I consider another side of my client base to be staff on Capitol Hill. I was a staffer. Those are the people that I interact with all the time. And it's a really mutual beneficial, mutually beneficial relationship because they want to know what investors are thinking. You know, what's the street going to respond to when I increase the debit interchange fee? Or, you know, how are they going to look if we do another cash for clunkers package? What's that going to do? Do the, do the auto sector need that? So um, I bring a lot of my clients down to DC to meet with staff. And I bring staff up to New York to meet with clients or to California. And um, there it's a two way street. So it's really cool. I enjoy it a lot. And, and so one of the things I'm interested in is what about policy towards Russia? That obviously is going to be a sore point, sticking point um, going forward. And um, where one where I would imagine Biden would be looking to draw some sharp distinctions from at least the perception of where the Trump administration policy has been. You know, one of the major disagreements between President Trump and the Republican caucus in the Senate 
was the lack of sanctions, just in general, but certainly against Russia. There's such a hefty appetite for sanctions for Venezuela, Iran, you know, in some cases, China and uh, secondary banking institutions over there for human rights violations. Russia, absolutely on the list. In the beginning of Trump's term, there was a lot of pressure that they were exerting behind the scenes to try to get some ramped up sanctions against Russia. And I think they would be very receptive to President Biden doing that in 2021 or beyond, yep. for sure. Makes sense. Where, where does immigration come into play? Is, is that something that Biden will look at quickly? I think there's a couple pieces, maybe on the smaller scale, the Dreamers components, for instance, or some tweaks to H-1B visas or seasonal visas. I can see some action at the regulatory level. 2013 was a huge learning experience, I think, for both Democrats and Republicans. We came very close to getting a bipartisan, comprehensive immigration reform bill done. And then, you know, out pops this concept of amnesty and it just evaporates. There's just no potential for a bill. So once you have hardliners that won't let you get to a middle ground, and it's not in anybody's best interest to find that middle ground, I don't think that you're going to see forward progress. So maybe at the executive branch level, or at the regulatory level, you can see some tweaks at the margins, but I don't think either side is incentivized enough to tackle immigration reform under Biden. Within the realm of things that Biden can do on his own um, in terms of tariff and trade policy, particularly toward China, where do you see that going? Or uh, how much do you, um, how much distinction do you see between the Trump administration policy on those issues? That is the $370 billion <laughs> question. <laughs> so you I've have 20 have... seconds. <laughs> okay. try, to, try to make it very terse and succinct. Okay. No, um, no, 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 please, we're kidding. <laughs> I can do that. Happy to, happy to tailor my, my responses. I would say that there is, there should not be any optimism that those tariffs will come off in the near term. The first priority is domestic policy. And as a result, before, nothing will happen before we get a stimulus bill passed. That's a requirement for getting a stimulus bill done in the first place. You cannot have ancillary issues taking any oxygen out of the room. This needs to be a full course, otherwise the bill won't pass. So that's priority number one. Priority number two starts to get into the trade realm. The first thing that the Biden administration is going to do is reset its relationships, first with the UK and the EU, but then also that helps bridge and repair relations with China. They'll bring Japan in, they'll bring Canada in. The Biden administration versus the Trump administration will be most different in the in the reality that the Biden team supports the idea of multinationalism and the Trump team does not. So there was a lot of focus on bilateral relations, the US-EU relationship, a US-UK trade agreement. So we're going to do a lot of table setting, resetting, rebuilding relationships, just trying to get in the same room with one another. And then I would anticipate that you might see at best some tariffs come down if they're stimulative to the domestic economy and we really face some pushback from Congress in getting any legislation through. I could see Biden saying, okay, well, there's this solar panel that's tariffed at 25%. Why don't we drop that down, boost the domestic industry? buy America, that whole, you know, mentality, get some tariffs down, and then move on from there. So it's not a wholesale reduction in the existing $360 billion worth of tariffs, but it is a step in that direction. 
maybe by the third, late third, fourth quarter of next year, you could start to see opening conversations between the two sides. And as a gesture of goodwill, you could reduce some of the list for a tariffs. The way I think about the tariffs is they're going to go come off or down on a last on first off basis. So we've got list one, two, three, and four A in effect now. List four A is at I think seven and a half percent on about $170 billion worth of goods. That could come down to call it 5% tariff rates or even cut it in half, maybe exempt whole product lines. That's the slow bleed of how we will unwind the existing tariffs, but it will not be immediate. There's a lot of support for those tariffs amongst the Democratic Conference. USTR Lifehizer did an excellent job of reading members in and really getting them to buy into the idea of these tariffs being necessary. And the Biden team and his USTR are going to want to see real tangible changes, not just soybean purchases from China in response to taking tariffs down. Jesus, you know shit, as John would say. <laughs> what would I say? What's that? I said, Jesus, you know your shit. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah, so, well, you know, it's a low bar to clear when you're talking about running to me, but no, you do. Can yeah, I talk about that? Give you the 20 second trading? answer. <laughs> yeah. 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 No. Because that, that's the longest an answer I can give. That's why. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I have a couple questions about topics that, I mean, we could talk to you for a, a long time on. Topics a little closer to home in terms of equity markets and um, how how they're operating. There, what, one question is uh, attitude towards buybacks, uh, right? So buybacks have been a somewhat political issue in recent years, and some questions about whether Biden appointees might try to impose some more restrictions there. Uh, another general topic is the increasing focus on ESG investing and whether there should be more concrete disclosure requirements around that. Any thoughts that you have on either or both of those topics? I think you. I think the first thing to start with would be to understand that legislation limiting buybacks or otherwise minimizing market activities at this point is probably not going to pass. So legislation is your most aggressive route. You can get the most done. You could just outright ban buybacks if you wanted to via legislation. With a 50-50 split Senate or even a 52-seat Senate, you're not going to pass legislation like that. They're going to be supporters of whatever item it is that you're discussing. The share buyback has been interesting most recently because we've been providing all these bailouts to the airline industry and people are pretty flipped out about that. So I do think that there is a, there should be a, an expectation that at least at the regulatory level at the federal agencies, you'll want to like adopt a very healthy understanding of at the minimum headline risk, but then actually real action because the Biden team has to do something and they're going to have three and a half years to do that something. So I would say that this will be at the margins. I have a good friend who works in one of the federal agencies and is dealing with the transition team right now. And he had the most fantastic line I've ever heard. He was like, the Biden transition team is overprepared and demanding. And (laughs) they are just completely swamped right now because these are folks who are absolutely the A team. And I, I mean, no disrespect to any other administration, except for just to say, these are a lot of the people who were in during Obama's term. So they're experienced. They know right. exactly what the role is. They have an agenda. This is effectively a third Obama administration term. So it's not like they're a fresh upstart group of folks. They know what they're doing. They have deep experience both in getting legislation passed and actually being at these agencies. And I think we should expect a lot to be proposed and much of it to actually go into effect 
at the regulatory level. So you're starting with a high bear, high bar for regulation, which necessarily means it's going to almost always be at the margins. Right. Prepared is a novel thing, right? I'm not sure. If you guys... <laughs> <laughs> well, it certainly would be a bit of a refreshing change. One, one would imagine. Like, I mean, yeah. I'm not sure, Henrietta, if you had a chance to read uh, Michael Lewis's book, The Fifth Risk. He talked about it was it was specifically about when Trump won in 2016 and how maybe uh, that regime plus the rest of the world wasn't prepared for what was to come. But um, it's, it's good to hear you say what you're saying about the Biden uh, administration. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's kind of incredible because the opportunity that these Democrats see right now, I would I think going back to the China example, but it really can be extrapolated onto any of them. The Trump administration basically came in and broke everything. And now the Biden team gets to come back in and build it the way they want to. And that is true for basically everything. All the regulations have been taken off. We get to put them back on. All the trade relationships have been blown up. We get to build them back up. It's, um, it's definitely like that across the board, I think. Right. Another general issue that the Biden team has been um, quick to try to capitalize on is divor- diversity generally, right? And so uh, certainly in terms of the appointments that have been announced um, thus far and trying to create a more transparently diverse uh, team than we've seen before in recent years. Do you see that play? And I noticed that NASDAQ has kind of somewhat smartly jumped out in front of that with these listing standard proposals they've put out for requiring their corporate issuers to have at least disclose why they don't have minority or LGBT uh, board members if they don't. Do you see that playing out um, in in practical ways, either in the securities markets or in, in financial services generally? Well, this is jaded of me, but I think it's kind of ingenious because if you are stressing the first female treasury secretary or the first black federal reserve chairman or you know any other minority de- designation, openly gay, whatever, it's incredibly effective because you get to focus on the diversity argument instead of dealing with the why isn't this person progressive enough? And it conveniently steers you away from having to cater to the far left contingent of the Democratic conference, which obviously is very important to the caucus, will be critical in the midterm elections, uh, is obviously going to be critical in Georgia on January 5th. And I think that it would be a, a missed opportunity for the business community and any of the exchanges not to take this gift and use it. I mean, you all have moms. Chicks are smart, you know? Why wouldn't you put them on your board? It's ridiculous <laughs> not to. And you don't, have to do, you don't have to do the other things that maybe you don't want to do by focusing there. It's also a big part of like a unifying agenda. I think that what we've seen in the last couple of years is that people like to spend their money in a way that makes them feel good. So, you know, why not? You know, they'll, yeah. they'll earn their business. I think you've seen major brands do that, and I would anticipate that they will continue. And uh, obviously, I welcome it. I had to start yeah. a whole company just to get a pay- fair pay. <laughs> hey, hey, and uh, sidebar, if there are any corporate board uh, recruiters out there that are looking for a smart, experienced, gay financial services professional, just throwing it out there. Uh, I'm, um, I'm available for anyone who wants to um yeah you have to complete an uh, outside business uh, form and i'm no, not, right, I'm not gonna okay, I, w- right, I want to prove yeah, it all right <laughs> compliance compliance <laughs> okay um, we'll edit that part out yeah <laughs> <laughs> what else you got john 
<laughs> well, I've been asking about some questions. You can ask another question. No, because I'm gonna I'm gonna go to the question of questions we ask all guests. Oh, okay. Well, well, let's try to come up with a, a more interesting one. One thought I have is, what's your expectation? I know that people have been talking about you because you mentioned this idea about uh, this almost being like a third Obama term. People are saying Biden may not run again. Do you think? What are your thoughts about that? Do you think he is likely to bow out after four years? I I don't know about Biden specifically. I do think that his cabinet positions and the choices he's making are setting up a ridiculously deep um, and experienced Democratic bench. So for instance, you've got Mayor Pete Buttigieg, who has a really strong foreign policy background, and he's naming him to be Secretary of Transportation. That's going to be the core part of domestic stimulus for the next four years. So that's giving him the wide range that he needs. And I think you can see in other cabinet officials that he has chosen to seat, he's giving foreign policy people domestic experience. He's giving domestic people foreign policy experience and really trying to grow the Democratic bench so that you know whatever comes at the Democrats in 2024, they'll be able to tackle. And I do think that the Republican bench is shaping up to be almost exclusively China hawks. Um, One of the things Mm. that you might want to keep in the back of your mind is that the next presidential debate is going to be at the same time that all the 2017 individual tax cuts expire. So you're going to have Republicans with a built-in infrastructure of being able to say, we're for low taxes, we want to make these permanent, Dems want to raise your taxes. So the Dems Mm. are going to have to have some sort of answer to that. They're going to go with, you know, tax the wealthy, give the benefits to the middle income individuals. That is obviously a strategy that worked in 2020 and it worked in 2008 under Obama and again in 2012. So they're comfortable with it. But those tax cuts are going to be expiring that year. And let me tell you, when Mitch McConnell wrote that bill, it was not an accident. Yeah, that's designed to expire. (laughs) then. So um, I think you're you're seeing the president-elect build up a lot of the Democratic conference in preparation for what is to come, whether that's him running again or anybody else. And obviously, I think the front runner at this point has to be Vice President Kamala Harris. Yep. All right. Well, I've gone through all of the, uh, I've gone through all the substance that I can run. And if you want to like revert to the socks, go to the movie in the socks. No, I'm not, I'm not going to socks. I just, the, the, the people want to know. They, they, we, we ask everybody the same question. Uh, what's your favorite Wall Street movie and why? Um, I am a sucker for a montage. I have very bad taste in movies. Basically anything in the sports realm with like an aggressive montage scene. Stick It is a good example or The Replacements. So oh, yeah. um, the movie with, I think, the best just sort of like perpetual scenes like that has got to be Boiler Room. So uh, that one gets mine. Love it. Absolutely love it. John, yeah. John, John, you want to keep tell your story once more, John? You... <laughs> well, if it will bore it. you too much, Ronan. No, I, I love Bo- no. Boiler Room because I, I was at the SEC at the time and I love the scene where, you know, they kind of like the, the SEC guys come rushing in at the end. Totally. With their, with their guns drawn and like they're windbreakers. against the wall. Yeah. yeah. I always wanted to carry a gun. They never let me. It was probably a good call. It probably was, yeah. No, Boiler Room is a good movie. I I actually, funny story, one of my first uh, almost jobs on Wall Street was I was interviewed in the same situation as in Boiler Room where I literally walked into a room, there was 30 of us, and some young guy was like yelling at us how much money we're going to make. And then I left. No one talked to me, nothing. 
and I got a job offer that night. And I'm like, something's wrong here. And I remember years later telling Michael Lewis that story and we Googled the name of the firm. And three years after I had started, they, they actually got arrested by the SEC. Wow. I, I, won't, I, won't even, wow. I won't even name the firm, but John could have actually been arresting me up against the wall. In the, in <laughs> oh, my and God, nothing that's would, crazy. Nothing would have made me happier. <laughs> Yeah. Like, that's one day we'll have a podcast together john <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's super awesome. cool yeah true yeah. story honestly and also what we give all of our guests and especially our smart intelligent guests like yourself smart chicks as you said if i call my mom <laughs> she's an Irish mom a chick she kicked the shit out of me but yeah. um mm-hmm. we give all our guests a pair of their very own iex socks don't I knock them till you try them very very comfortable and we can send you the very colorful ones, if you like, or you can get the black and white ones that John wears. Yeah, uh, I would love the colorful ones. Thank you, guys. <laughs> we'll you They're very warm, too. Nice for the winter, although you're in New Orleans, so you probably don't need the warm socks as much. Yeah, as- we're, we're under snow here at the moment. But, but listen, honestly, um, I, I meant what I said when I said you knew your shit. It was really, really interesting. There's, there's not a question we, we could come up with that would stump you. But uh, you, you, know, I really, you definitely know your shit. It's been aspirational for Ronan and me that we will one day manage to get ours together too. So, <laughs> one day, one no, day. No, it's, you guys are doing a heck of a podcast. It's really cool to, to listen to. It's a wide range. It's very impressive. Oh, we're, we're, we're all over the map, but, but absolutely. You, you might be one of the guests that while on, I'd love to have you back on again, because yeah. this is only going to keep, <laughs> keep, keep changing. Yes, it sure does. I, I do feel very comfortable with my job security. <laughs> for, for sure. <laughs> so, John, you, you want you want to finish this uh, podcast with one of your bad Irish send-offs? Very well, Ian. Very well, Ron. He thinks I sound like Mrs. Doubtfire. You do. Totally. <laughs> God bless you all. May, may the road rise up to meet you. <laughs> Thanks very much, Henrietta. Honestly, we really appreciate it. Thank you guys for having me. Hey everyone, we're back. As we mentioned at the top, we invited Henrietta back on January 11th to help us and our listeners think through how the events of the first week of January may impact legislative agenda. Uh, welcome back, Henrietta. What, what do you think? <laughs> how is the landscape different now compared to when we spoke a few weeks ago? It, everybody woke up on Wednesday morning very surprised that Democrats had won both Democratic seats in Georgia. The importance of that cannot be overstated. Democrats now have control of the Senate floor. And while it, be, it will be very difficult to put legislation into law with such a moderate contingent of Democrats and a bare razor thin majority, nonetheless, you have a real possibility here for some major legislation to pass, not just in the first quarter, as we'd previously predicted, but also in the back half of 2021. And here's how that's going to go. One, I think we're going to see 60 votes for a stimulus bill. That's not just because of COVID and the horrible jobs report, but the Georgia elections are now going to make Majority Leader Schumer in control of the floor. So he can put this bill on the floor and force Republicans to vote for or against it, which previously was not something they had to do. And then secondarily, the insurrection on Capitol Hill immediately following the Georgia elections has created a situation that puts a number of Republicans, especially in the Senate, in the position of wanting to shift towards a policy narrative as opposed to focusing on their former leader, President Trump. So moving into the January 30th deadline, which is the eviction moratorium deadline, moving into mid-February, which is when the 2009 stimulus package passed under Biden last time around, 
And then finally, into March 14th, which is when the unemployment insurance benefits expire under the previous COVID relief bill, you're going to have real opportunity for 60 votes. And that will deliver stimulus to the U.S. economy in the first quarter, I would predict with pretty high odds, somewhere in the range of $750 billion to at the high end, call it $1.8 trillion. It'll be tough slog, but they will get that done. And thereafter, we'll be able to move to reconciliation instructions that I expect will be heavily focused on infrastructure. The question I answer, I answer most from our clients is, are my taxes going to go up? And the answer is no, unless you can get Manchin, Cinema, Warner, Kelly, and others to vote for tax increases in the Democratic Party. There's no way you're going to get Republican votes for that. So you're looking at a really targeted and clumsy infrastructure package in the back half of 2021 as well. So a couple different opportunities for shots on goal for President Biden now that they've won Georgia. And, and I would think, Henrietta, that apart from just wanting to show that the on the Republican side that they are shifting to sort of a policy focus, I would think from their part, too, they want to be able to demonstrate that they are decent people of goodwill who believe in democracy and want to deliver something for the American people, right? So one would hope that would be kind of part of the motivation, too. We can definitely hope. I, I would say the thing that gives me the most comfort is that they will not be able to hold out for the perfect. So yeah. for instance, with business liability reforms, which has been such a huge priority in the Republican party, they want five years of liability protections. Are they really gonna vote no on a bill that gives them a year and a half or two years or three years? It's a different calculus now. And that's the value of controlling the Senate floor is that you get to put that less than perfect Republican plan on the floor and force them to vote against it. And to your point, if they're trying to shift to a policy narrative and bring the country together, you know, we know that Biden's entire approach to his term is going to be about uniting America. As they try to shift away from being the party of Trump, they're going to want to focus on policy and have a discussion about what is the correct form for our business liability? What do we really need to do for state and local aid? What are our infrastructure needs? What do we need for PPE? All that, all that really nitty gritty detail, I imagine, will be much more important to them and they'll have to actually take votes on it and they'll want to. I, I also wanted to ask you about a, a much more, a much narrower kind of aspect of this and the impact of the change in Senate control. One aspect, obviously, is that Biden is going to be able to have much more flexibility in terms of getting the people he wants confirmed, mm -hmm. um, right, whether that's as he's chair or others. The other question, I guess, is the uh, potential for rolling back, reversing some of the late-term regulatory changes that were pushed through in the Biden administration. There's this somewhat obscure provision called the Congressional Review Act that gives the Democrats some window of time to try to reverse some of those changes that were pushed through late in the Trump administration. Do you think that's going to happen? Do you have any sense about what kinds of things might be uh, candidates for that sort of review? Yes, absolutely. Um, and I think it's really smart to think of the CRA. It's definitely something the Biden team and the House and Senate staffers are going to deploy. The sequencing is going to be a little complicated. As you mentioned, you need to get the cabinet secretaries confirmed. You need to pass the stimulus package. That's priority number one. But the CRA is going to be used on anything that was passed in the last few months. And we know that there are a host of outstanding issues that the Treasury is trying to rule on right now, whether that is related to cryptocurrencies, delisting Chinese companies from U.S. exchanges, um, pushing those requirements forward. Uh, there's a whole spate of tariffs on Vietnam that the USTR is threatening to impose in the very near term. So I expect action on all of those fronts within you know, the three-month 
window that they have to CRA. The one of the biggest and I think underappreciated components of winning the Senate is that they now get to do that. And it'll be a very big component of the administration in the first couple months. Interesting. And I had one other question that maybe to partly uh, relates to the change in Senate control. So one topic in SEC land that has been highly political and controversial for a long time is political contributions, right? And in part, I started to think about this because of some of the reporting that I saw this morning about some corporations deciding to pause their political contributions or limit their contributions to maybe some of the congressmen that it chose to challenge the electoral um, certifications. So the people on the Democratic side that have been saying for a long time that corporations need to disclose more information about who they are contributing to, and that's been highly controversial. Do do you think there might be some more movement on that front? Good question. I I think that a voting rights bill is going to be amongst the first couple packages that the Biden administration encourages the House to work on, and you'll probably even see legislation roll out in the first quarter or the second quarter, just to put a marker down that, hey, this is an issue we have and we want to focus on this. Um, I think a lot of that will have to do with when the House sends the impeachment articles over to the Senate for President Trump, how they intend to sort of tie the Republican Party to President Trump going forward. So I think that the, the, the talk about a domestic stimulus bill is going to supersede that. And by necessity, as I think we talked about earlier in the podcast, you have to exclusively focus on that one bill if you're going to get 60 votes. And that's going to limit any negotiations or final passage or votes on a Voting Rights Act or a Political Contributions Act just by necessity in order to keep that momentum for 60 vote domestic stimulus happening. But as soon as that's gone, you're going to have a free for all of all of these issues. And it's definitely not going to be on the back burner for very long. So I would anticipate reform there. I would anticipate a whole spate of pieces of legislation, hearings at a minimum. And those hearings serve a purpose in that they really pressure media to pay attention to it, bring it to the fore. Another thing that's happened that I think is potentially even more impactful than legislation is that Democratic lawmakers are telling lobbying firms that if they have Trump acolytes or, you know, senators or their staff who are supportive of President Trump or maybe the insurrection on Capitol Hill, that they will literally not take their meetings. So that's going to force a change. And, you know, you guys know D.C. and you know how the inner workings work, I'm sure. The number of resumes circulating right now for staff that want to get jobs in these lobbying firms, just that alone is going to be deeply impactful even before the legislation passes. But as soon as we pass the stimulus, they'll move on to that. Yeah. Well, all I can say is that your advice and counsel have probably never been more valuable and important um, now uh, than now. Uh, I'm big sure, year for you. Uh, big year for you. Yeah, absolutely. I could take a slow year. I'm not going to lie. I, I could take a slow year. <laughs> There's no rest. No rest. Maybe in 2022. <laughs> <laughs> and opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for informational and educational purposes only. And IEX Group, Inc. and its affiliates do not make any representations or warranties as to the accuracy or completeness of the information contained in this podcast. Nothing in this podcast constitutes a solicitation or offer to buy or sell any securities or provide any investment advice or service. Some portions of the preceding conversations may have been edited for length or clarity. Copyright IEX Group, Inc. All rights reserved.